this morning, we are in 15 minutes going to start part one of a three-part preach on base churches while still being in the book of Acts. So if you can turn to Acts chapter 19 this morning, please. It'll be very good if you have your Bible, be it on your phone or in uh, uh, the non-phone form, a book form. Uh, get that out because we're going to read 41 verses this morning, which will take up a good time of this morning. We're going to make some comments. But this morning, we want to begin by looking at base churches. And there's a lot of the notes that I had prepared you I'm not going to get to, which is actually okay. Because this morning, actually, we've demonstrated what church should look like and what a base church should look like, just in everything that we have done. So let me give you a definition quickly of a base church. When we talk about a base church, this is a form of a definition. A base church, it's a generous, resourcing church that has the Great Commission at its heart, and it serves as an example. A base church has an apostolic impact, meaning they're beyond themselves. They're not just about what happens within our walls or for our own gain. We're thinking beyond. We're thinking of the suburb we're in and the city we're in and the nation we're in. The continent and the nations, we're apostolic. We're continually trying to pioneer wherever God would lead and send us. So base church has an apostolic impact as it trains and it sends leaders and it plants new churches wherever God would lead. Now this morning, we've, it's been a beautiful celebration of church. Because what we have here is we have a number of individual believers. You're all an individual believer. God has impacted you personally. He's called you by name personally. You had a moment in your life, and I'm guessing it's the majority of you here this morning, where you heard Jesus call your name and say, will you believe in me and have faith in me that I love you, that I saved you, that I have a life for you and I want to set you free of your sin and your past and of any bondage that you live by. I've called you to be a part of my family. And you responded and you said, yes, Lord, I have faith. I believe. That was you. You had that moment. But God never saves us in isolation and calls us to live our lives alone. In fact, one of the beautiful things we're seeing in the book of Acts and what we've been reading for the last few chapters is we see Paul is continually going on um, mission trips. And uh, we've read two of the ministry trips he's been on. We're about to enter into a third ministry trip that he's going to go on. If you can just put up the map of that um, uh, Paul's third missionary trip. And what you'll start to see is this is the third leg of Paul's ministry journey. And what he does is he leaves his base church, his home church, his local church, which is in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. And as the Spirit leads him, as the Father leads him, he goes from place to place, from place. And each place is a little bit different. Some welcome him, some reject him. With some, he's accepted. Some, he's um, persecuted. Uh, some, he stays for a short time. Some, he stays for a longer time. And that's all determined predominantly by what the Father tells him to do. But what he keeps doing is what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. We see in Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus says, and uh, this is right before Jesus ascends to be with the Father, and he's about to commission the church 
to now exist and to go and be his ambassadors. And Jesus says to the disciples in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And we see that the church began in Jerusalem, spreading the gospel, and then due to persecution, they go further out. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. The disciples spread out. And then they went even further out, and you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And so we see Paul's living out that promise and that command. He was filled with the Spirit. He was anointed and empowered and strengthened. He was encouraged, and he went out from place to place, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Paul would later on end up in Rome, which was the, the, the hub of the Roman Empire. And he would go there, and he would minister from there. And his desire was to even get to Spain, which... I'm guessing in his mind was the end of the earth. What's beyond Spain? Well, the ocean and maybe, maybe something else. But as far as he knew, that was the end. Get to Spain and then the whole earth has heard the gospel. But that's what he was doing. And what he did as he went from place to place to place was there were disciples, those who believed. And what's amazing is no believer has read all the terms and conditions and the addendums of what they're about to believe when they come to know Jesus. You did not know everything you're about to believe in when you confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Isn't that amazing? What you did know was that the Savior said, I love you and I can save you and I can rescue you and I can give you life. And you said, I know his name's Jesus and I'm gonna say yes, but I don't know what I'm saying yes to. I don't know what's the more, and I don't know what the fullness of the salvation is. I don't know about the assurance of the salvation or the security of the salvation. And then God knows that. God says, now you need to be discipled. Now that you believe, let, let the discipling process take place. And what's the best way for discipling to take place? It's within the church. So from place to place, disciples get together. And they start to do what we see in Acts 4, where it says that, the believers got together and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is God's word telling us? What did the Old Testament letters and prophets and Psalms tell us about God's plan, about salvation, about the Messiah, about Jesus? What did Jesus' teachings tell us about God's kingdom culture? And so they started to devote themselves to that. They devoted themselves to prayer. Let's pray together. Let's continually ask the Father, what are we supposed to be doing? Here we are, Lord, your church. Now what? They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, continually reminding themselves of the gospel that they believe in, the gospel that has saved them. Jesus, not getting confused by all the philosophies and other nonsense that people can get distracted by, but to remind ourselves continually, it's Jesus and him dying and him resurrecting and him bringing salvation to us, and they devoted themselves to fellowship, this encouragement, this gathering together. And so this is the church. And as Paul goes from place to place, you'll see churches, we use that word planted. And the word planted means a church starting, establishing. And the hope would be that within the churches, there would be discipling, raising, releasing. We've done that this morning. This morning, we've welcomed in 29 people who've said, I want to belong to a community I want to be discipled. I want to grow. And you've welcomed them in and said, come join and be a part of us so we can walk a journey with you because God has more. 
We've sent a family out because God has said to that family who are sons and daughters in this house, who were discipled in this very place amongst us, God said, cool, can I separate Ryan, Shannon, Jensen, and Evan, can I separate them from you and send them somewhere else for my church to grow there as well? And we say, Lord, it is your will. Send them, and they've asked, and they've journeyed, and there they go. And now a church over there is going to welcome them in and say, welcome to us, and God's going to keep doing that. We've announced a few ministry things that are going to happen, key, key women, prayer meetings, DNA, equipping courses. Why? Because God wants to disciple you and me that we'd walk and run in all that God has for us. So, base church is happening right now. We're living in it. But what we continually need to understand is we need to continually be the church that God has called us to be. And so Cornerstone Church, our warning here is that we never get comfortable. We never get comfortable and pursue the comforts of what we presume, presume church to be. But then we constantly grasp the mission that we're on. So let me read Acts chapter 19. I'll make one or two quick comments. And then um, for the next two weeks, we'll continue with grasping and understanding what base church should be and what we need to be as a church. All right, so Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. Ephesus is going to be our example of base church for the next three weeks. There he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So these guys are similar to Apollos, who you would have read about in the previous chapter, which is quite amazing because it's possible for us to have salvation, but not live in the fullness of what God has for us, like having the Holy Spirit live within us. That's a promise of God that the Spirit would live inside of you. Many of us this morning might say, Lord, I believe in you. And God says, yes, but there's more. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know that he's going to fill you and lead you and love you and comfort you and teach you and empower you and anoint you? Do you know that? Well, this was what Paul was saying to these guys in Ephesus. Do you know it? And they said, no, we don't know of him. In verse 3, and he said, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. So in hearing this, realizing there's more, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is water baptism, a public declaration that I believe in Jesus. They did that in obedience. And then verse six, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There are about 12 in all. There's a conscious experience of the Spirit in their life, and that is God's desire for every single one of us, that we would have a conscious experience of His promises over our lives, and that includes the Holy Spirit living within us. If you have not had a conscious experience of the Holy Spirit in your life, please do not fear what that means. We can over-spiritualize this, but it's actually a wonderful promise that the Father gives to us, that a helper an advocate, one who would come to um, affirm our own spirit so we can confess, this is my Father. We need to long for the Spirit in our lives. Ask Him. Say, Father, I don't think I've had a conscious experience. I want to know Him in my life. And this is a moment that they had. As Paul says, there's more for you as a church. That's the church now being formed in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, very quickly, was a, a major city. It was the fourth largest city known in the world then. 
It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It was a massive commercial city in Asia Minor, a thriving port city and a major economic center, a key trade route. It's there that God says, I will plant my church. God says, in the midst of this economic hub, this major city, God says, there I want my believers to be. There I want Jesus to be proclaimed. It's there that I want my church to impact the world. God still does that today. He looks for the key cities and he impacts them. He looks for the small suburbs and towns. He says, I'll be there too. God goes to all over. Here in Johannesburg, this is a key city. And God says to us, the believers like those, I'm going to establish you in this key city of Johannesburg to impact nations, regions, individuals, and the multitude. Verse 8, Paul then entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what they called the believers, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, listen to this, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's the impact of the church. For two years, Paul's discipling, raising up leaders, maturing believers. And what's the impact? The word of God rippled out and out and out that all residents of Asia heard the gospel message. Church, that is our call today. We are not to be stuck within these walls. I don't even know what the shape is. But whatever the shape is, we're not meant to be stuck inside this shape. We are meant to see the word of God ripple out and out and out. That all of Morning Hill will hear the word of the Lord. That all of Bedford View, Kensington, Edenvale, Primrose will hear the word of the Lord. That all of Johannesburg will hear the word of the Lord. And let's keep going on and on and on. Ryan and Shannon's dream right now, that all of Austin, Texas hear the word of the Lord because we are preaching God's word and we're seeing it going out. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, those are traveling exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, uh, verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Wow. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so there's a whole lot in that passage that you must have a number of questions, which I'd love to be able to answer and look at, but we just cannot. Which is wonderful, because that means you carry the responsibility this week to go home and to dig into what this all means. But let me summarize some things quickly that might just make you wonder what's going on here. 
The key point is that we need to be aware, church, that we are a part of a real spiritual battle. We have to know that. We can never be so caught up in the natural that we forget actually the enemy that we face and the battles we face are predominantly spiritual. We can't get to the extreme where we just focus on the spiritual and neglect the natural, but we need to be aware that there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. And the great news is that Jesus reigns and rules, and we sang about that this morning, over all powers and positions and principalities and dominions. Jesus, you reign. Jesus announces that in Matthew 24, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He carries all authority, and you can see the spiritual battle, and you can see the victory that the church is having. You can see what happens when you go out not in the name of Jesus. Like those sons of Sceva, I heard some of you laugh, and I hope I mean, it is, it's a very funny story. But my hope, Lord, may that not happen to me. The point is that we go out in the authority of Jesus, and there's incredible things that happen. Even the fact that handkerchiefs and aprons of Paul's can go out and perform miracles, that's not the norm. Okay, so that's not the formula. And if that was the formula, you would find on our website, Greg's unique handkerchiefs for sale. And I'd have a market, and we could customize these things and sell these things. It's not the formula, but it can happen because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and his authority, he could take anything upon somebody and bring healing and bring signs and wonders. And notice there's fear that comes upon all of Ephesus. And the word of the Lord goes out. There's a spiritual battle that we're a part of. And when you continually church, be aware of that. Something that's incredible to see then is the conviction that happens upon salvation with all those who believed in all other beliefs. Those books that they burnt, and I'm trusting Jonathan's maths here. It says it came up to 50,000 days worth of wages that they burnt up. All those books of magic and divination, all that stuff. That's over 100 million rand in today's money. Now that's just not a group of people saying, okay, let's just believe something different. That's not a group of people who say, okay, well, this is a new way of living, or this is a new morality, or this is a new idea, or this is the latest fad. Their hearts were so convicted that a hundred million rands worth of material that was contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they determined had to be destroyed, and there they burnt it. There's a conviction of heart. And for us as believers, that's what we need to continually come to. May there be a conviction of our hearts that we come before God. That was Kim's word this morning, is that we would come before God and say, Lord, I'll partake in my own crucifixion before you, that things, Lord, that are contrary to you, things, Lord, that oppose you, things, Lord, of my life that would hold me back from the fullness that I have in you deserve to be burnt, whatever that value might be, because they have no value in my life before you, maybe to the natural, but before you, God, they are worthless, and they burnt them. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, 
this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. His issue was not that their spiritual God, their, 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 their sense of identity, their sense of worth, their sense of life is being um, uh, challenged. He's not saying Artemis, who's my God, who gives me life and hope and, and fullness of life is being um, uh, dishonored. His issue is his money. My money is being stolen because a different message is being preached. And this blows my mind when he says, they are telling people that the gods we make with our hands are not gods. Make that make sense. That's like you making, so let's say this week you go home and you get a piece of wood and you make the best statue you can. And if you're good with uh, iron, you blacksmith into a, a statue of some sort. You bring it here next week and you tell Greg, this is the God we ought to follow. Where did it come from? I made it, but this is my God and I'll give my life to this thing I've just made. And I said to you, that is not a God. And you said, I made this with my hands. It is a God. Can you see the foolishness of it? They're so upset because Paul's saying the very thing you made is not your God. In fact, if there is a God in the story, it'd be you over the thing. Because you could click your fingers and it'll be gone. You could throw in the fire and it'll be gone. But can you see how confused they are and how their hearts are so lost? They're more concerned about money. They're more concerned about the idols they get to make than about the true God that's been declared. Verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Ephesus was also, sorry, so the point here, Ephesus was also a large idol-worshipping city. There was a great spiritual battle that lay ahead, but yet God said, here I will plant my church. In the midst of this place, I will plant my church. Here, I will bring light into darkness. Here, I want to see my church established. And we see the church does that. Verse 28. We're almost there. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, and they were urging him not to go into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Guys, that's just like today. The world is protesting. The world is rioting. They're holding placards for stuff they don't even know what they're doing. They're in marches, and they don't even know why they're there. They don't even know what they're fighting for. People are tweeting in anger stuff they don't even know what they're arguing about. The world is in confusion, but we've got truth to bring a direction, a hope, and a life. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Probably means a meteor of some sort landed there and they built the temple around it. Um, verse 36, seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him, if they have charges against one another, uh, sorry, if they have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he he dismissed the assembly. It's good to see that the church is doing what the church is called to do, but they're not in violation of the law. They're not being illegal. They're not dishonoring governments. And that's good for us, the church, to know. There will be times when the gospel will offend governments and will be offensive to the law. But that's not always the case. There are times when the government can look upon us and say, the church has done nothing wrong. They can keep proclaiming their message, keep doing what you want to proclaim. And so in the next two weeks, we'll unpack chapter 19 in a bit more detail. And I encourage you this week, go read through it, go and do some digging yourself. But here's the emphasis that I want to make this morning. is we see a church is established, a base church. And the church impacts the individual. It impacts the one and the two. It impacts the 12 that Paul gets to pray for in Ephesus. And those individuals gather together to be the church. But then the church will start to influence the region and the whole city. And the church goes to impact the whole of Asia. And the church will go on to have a bigger impact. So for us, my final encouragement to get us launched into this idea of a base church. Can I encourage you, you are part of something wonderful, beautiful, called by God, built by Jesus. It's called the church. You're here to belong to be discipled, to impact. And the impact God's going to have on you and me is not just for you alone. God's not going to ask you to do your very best to make you the best individual you can be. Jesus will do that. And the Spirit will do that. But He's going to often ask you to stop looking in the mirror and start looking out the windows. Because if we keep looking at the mirror, all we're thinking about is how do I make myself as righteous and holy as I can be. That's not your call. That's not your commission. Our call and commission church is we look out of these windows, we open these doors, we go out, and we take the name of Jesus where we can. And my friends, that is a base church. It's not on size. It's not on numbers. It's not on resources. It's on heart. It's our heart to go out and see a world changed. We get to do that. And we get to do that And you being here, I'm guessing as you saying, well, I get to do that too. So that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. Read ahead and um, we'll unpack this a bit more further on. All right.